welcome to the weekly podcast of River Valley Church. We're glad you're here. Our heart is to lead people to Jesus and launch them into their God-given purpose. So we pray you would encounter God in a fresh, new way today. To learn more about our church, visit rivervalley.org. Now, let's tune in to this week's message. Good morning, River Valley Church. My goodness, I'm so excited to be here. (laughs) You know, I have to say, it's such an honor for Lisa and I to be here this weekend together uh, because we think so much of your leaders. Pastor Rob, Pastor Becca, all the campus pastors. How many of you know you have amazing leaders in this church? I mean, I've just, oh my gosh. What? This man, his heart burns for the kingdom. This woman, her heart burns for the kingdom. Last week, we had our messenger cup, our annual messenger cup, and we had friends coming over. And do you know that your church, you need to know this, that you sponsored, I think, something like 7,000 pastors to get to get uh, leadership packs in Russia. And, and then there was another several thousand in Estonia and then Moldova. You did that as a church. I just want you to know that. And so I am just so honored to be part of this family. I don't want you to see me as a guest speaker. It is Uncle John, okay? We got, Pat, we got Papa Rob and Mama Becca. Uncle John is in the house tonight or this morning, right? I got, I'm, I'm, I'm turned around because I think I'm flying all over the world too much. But anyway, it is just so great to be here. And the thing I, I just really want to thank you for is the way you keep reaching out to this, uh, to this Metroplex. Seven campuses. Um, I know all the campuses are watching. You know, I just expect with the way the fire that's in this church that someday there's going to be like 20 campuses. And, it, and the reason is, is because I know your pastor so well. We, we spend a lot of time together. I mean, he is truly, when, when people say to me, hey, John, what's, what's some of your favorite churches in the country? In my first breath is River Valley Church. And that's not exaggerated. I don't believe in lying and I, don't, I just, you don't say anything. But the reason I love him so much because we spend so much time together is all he can talk about is the kingdom, the kingdom, the kingdom, advancing the kingdom. So when you've got a couple with the fire in them like that, you just got to expect that they're not going to be satisfied until every person's saved in Minneapolis, St. Paul. Amen. So can we get on that vision train? Can we do that together? Amen. And I love this new complex. What a privilege to be here. And I know some of you don't know me because you guys keep growing and growing. So you're like, Uncle John? Well, listen, best way I know to introduce myself is to share with you my family. And here's a a recent snapshot of my family. And that is my beautiful, gorgeous wife. I told Lisa a few months ago, I said, honey, if you were single, I would be so on your trail. And we have been married 33 years this October. Our four sons are there. And then that's Juliana, our daughter-in-law. Addison is starts 
parts of the left, Austin, Alec, and Arden, and then we have our G-babies. We have three G-babies. You say, what in the world is a G-baby? I am way too young to be grandpa, so it's G-daddy and G for short. So let me highlight the Gs. Here they are. This is Asher. He turns six next month, and then this is Sophia Gray. She was the first girl born in the entire Bevere or Toscano clan since 1967, and then last year we got Lizzie Hope, and that is, oh, she's so adorable. Anyway, that is my family, and the more I come to love my family, the more I realize how much God loves us, because how many of you know we're his family? Can you say amen to that? Now, this morning, I I am so excited, because Tuesday, in just two days, it is the release of probably one of the most important books I have ever written in my entire life. I had a national leader come to me 20 months ago, and he said, John, you've written many, many books. I said, yeah. He said, but there's a book now you have to write. It's heaven's mandate on you, and it will impact the body of Christ more than anything you've written before. That was after 18 books. And so all last year I spent writing this message because I believe it's much more than a book, it's a message. And it's entitled Good or God and it is coming out, it's in all the campuses, we've got it there, but it's actually coming out Tuesday and I just said to Pastor Rob, Pastor Rob, I would love if anywhere in the United States that I can introduce this message would be official launch weekend would be at River Valley. So I wanna share with you about that today. So I just wanna ask you all to stand up And I just want to ask one simple question. Do you want a message from me tonight or do you want your life changed forever? Which one? That's really good. But you know what the Bible says? The Bible says we don't have because we don't ask. So can we pray? Let's believe God for that. Father, in the name of Jesus, I thank you so much for this amazing church that you've planted all over this metroplex. And I'm asking, Lord, this morning that you would literally invade these sanctuaries, all seven campuses, that you would reveal Jesus to us greater than we've ever known him before. For I decree this night, your kingdom has come within us. Therefore, your will shall be done in this place on earth as it is in heaven. And for this, we give you all the honor and and the praise and the glory and the thanksgiving. And it is in Jesus' mighty name that we pray. And everybody that agrees shouts. Amen. Come on, give him praise for what he's going to do. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Good. Are we born with this inherent knowledge of what is right and what is wrong? Has our sense of good shaped our culture, formed our laws, and warmed our hearts? If it appears good, must it also be of God? Have we made good and God synonymous? Have we made good and God interchangeable? Have we made good and God one? There is a way that seems right, that seems wise, that seems acceptable, that seems beneficial, that seems profitable, that seems good. And yet, a warning has been declared. What appears good may in actuality be an illusion, deception. Even the elect will fall to this. The illusion will sweep through the nations, for they embrace a mere appearance of good and God. But promise and truth remain within the word of God. For God's word, it is inspired, it is useful, it has revealed what is broken and taught what is true, what is right, and what is good. 
unified through the nation and spoken through his spirit. The evidence of its accuracy has overwhelmed like a symphony, harmonious, yet orchestrated by one. His truth, his word has been spoken for every word of God proves true. Today in our society, and it's even crept into the church, good and God seem to be synonymous. If it's good, it has to be God. Yet if good is so obvious, why does Hebrews chapter 5 tell us that we have to have a heart of discernment to recognize the difference between good and evil? If you look at King Solomon, at the dawn of his reign, he cries out, God, give me an understanding heart that I might understand or I might be able to discern the difference between good and and evil. Let me just ask you a question. Don't you think it's a smart idea to preserve your boss's life? I mean, or somebody close to you, tell him to live a long life. Yet Peter tried to do this with Jesus. And Jesus looked at him and rebuked him and said, You're, you are merely seeing things from a human point of view, not from God's point of view. If you look at, there is a certain situation that occurred in the Bible, and I'm just going to modernize this, modernize this. Can you imagine if somebody literally purchase literally a $30,000 outfit for somebody else. Let's just say somebody in the church, they gave somebody else a $30,000 outfit. What would you go? You'd go, man, what a waste of money. You could feed so many poor people with that. Yet that's exactly what Judas said, and he incited the disciples to turn against the woman that broke open a $30,000 bottle of perfume and poured it all over Jesus. He called it, Judas called it a bad work. Jesus said, She's done a good thing, and it's going to be remembered. If you look at the rich young ruler, he came running to Jesus, and he said, good teacher. This is the first words came out of his mouth. Good teacher, what do I do to get eternal life? And before Jesus even answered his question, Jesus said, why do you call me good? Nobody's good but God alone. Now, can I ask a question? Is Jesus not good? No. What Jesus is saying is, you have a different reference point than what God has. God is perfect good, Jesus is perfect good, but your reference point of what is good and what God's is, is two different things. See, look at it like this. You can have two families, two different families move into two homes exactly the same. They're both $200,000 homes, they're three bedrooms, three baths. To one family, it's a bad move. To one family, it's a good move. The family with the good move, they just moved out of a one bedroom apartment. The family that's a bad move, they just moved out of a $2 million estate. So good is all about the right reference point. Let me tell you something. I think I would have probably been treated by Jesus like the rich young ruler. And the reason is, is because I experienced this. I was in my um, hotel room in Sweden. I was getting ready to speak to 3,000, or excuse me, 6,000 people from 60 different nations, leaders. And I remember in my hotel room, I was, in, I was praying and getting ready for the service. And the Holy Spirit and I were having an argument. Now, I don't know how else to describe this, but I was frustrated because I had judged a situation to be good. And the Holy Spirit was saying, son, it's not good. And he kept showing me the scripture that showed that it wasn't good. And finally, out of frustration, I just slammed my foot down on the hotel room floor. And I said, but God, all the good that's been done. And the Lord said this to me, and this is really what birthed this message. He said, son, it wasn't the evil side of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that Eve was attracted to. 
He said it was the good side. And when he said that to me, I had my physical Bible in front of me. I flew over to Genesis. And when I saw the words, when she saw the tree was good, it was pleasant and it was desirable to make her wise. My jaw literally dropped open and I thought, wow, wow, wow. And the Holy Spirit took that opportunity and he said, son, there is a good that is very rebellious to me. And all of a sudden I realized, and this is what the Lord spoke to me in that hotel, I should actually say. He said, son, Christians are not gonna be deceived by drug infested parties. They're not gonna be drawn to satanic rock concerts. They're not gonna be drawn to robbing a bank with, with, you know, with guns. He said, Christians are going to be deceived by good that is very rebellious to me. So if you really wanna put, really put a label on it, it's the good side of evil. See, if you look at the Bible, the Bible says Satan, doesn't say Satan can transform himself as an angel of light, it says he does. And he says, if he does, then his ministers do as well. So the thing is, Jesus repeatedly warns, when anybody asks Jesus about what was going to be the sign of your return, Jesus would say, be careful that you're not deceived. I mean, he talked about deception like crazy. And then he made this statement, he said, in the days right before he returns, he said, if possible, even the elect, now we're talking about Christians, are going to be deceived. And I think about Paul talking about the falling away of the church. I think about Paul talking about deception. I think about Peter talking about deception. I think about Jude talking about deception. And all of a sudden, I'm sitting here going, wow, we act as if it's never going to occur. But the fact is, Jesus said there's going to be such massive deception right before he returns. If possible, the elect are going to be deceived. Now, I'm going to tell you, Christians are not going to be deceived by blatant evil. They're going to be deceived by a evil that is masked with good. Are you with me? Because the Bible says, and you saw it in the video, there is a way that seems right. It seems good to a man, but its end is the way of death. Now, the reason so many Christians don't pay attention to this is because they say, hey, the end is the way of death. I'm not going to end up in death. I'm going to heaven. Now, you got to understand he's not talking about heaven and hell right here. He's talking about the wisdom we live, live by. If you look at Jeremiah, the Lord says to his people, these are people that are in the way of life. He says, I set before you the way of life and the way of death. The way of life and the way of death speaks of the wisdom that we live by. Are you with me? And so if you look back at what Proverbs says, there is a way that seems good, but its end is the way of death. In other words, there's a way that will seem good, but the end of it will bring you to a place you don't want to find yourself. It will be detrimental to you rather than good for you. Are you with me? And so the question that, that I have had for so long is how did Satan deceive Eve? Because if you will remember, I mean, okay, let's just look at the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul like didn't visit churches he lived amongst these churches. I mean, he was in the Corinthian church for three years, just lived among them every day. And do you know what he cried out to the Corinthian church? He said, I fear in 2 Corinthians eleven three 3, that somehow your pure and undivided devotion to Christ is going to be corrupted. Look at the word corrupted. Just as Eve was deceived by the cunning ways of the serpent. Now, Paul is saying this to a church 
he has lived with and taught nonstop for three years. But I want you to see the care, the concern he has for them. It's amazing when you think about it. But he says, the way the serpent deceived Eve, I'm, I'm concerned he's going to do the same thing with you. Now, can I say this? It's bothered me for years. How in the world does the enemy get Eve to turn on God? I mean, because think about it. She's never been lied to. She's never been gossiped about. Nobody ever mistreated her. She's in a perfect environment. She's walking in the presence of God. Okay, now, if he can get her to turn on God in a perfect environment, how much easier is it for him to corrupt us in an environment that is ruled by the prince of the power of the air? So the the thing I got to understand is, how did he get her to turn on God? Because I'm going to tell you this right now. You can deceive proof your life. Because the Bible tells us that. I'm not saying that just to say it. I've got, I've, got, I've got backing. I've got the scripture. Christians can deceive, prove their life. And that's what James tells us. And I'm going to get into that in a, in a minute, all right? But the, question, the first question I want to ask is, how does the enemy get her to turn on God? Well, let's go back to the garden, all right? So we go back to the garden. You got to remember, God has created Adam. Eve has not been taken out of Adam yet. And God makes this statement to Adam. He says, you may eat the fruit of any tree in the garden except the tree that gives the knowledge of what is good and what's bad. You must not eat the fruit of that tree. If you do, you will die the same day. Now, you have to understand, a lot of Christians think there's two trees in this garden. I got news for you. There wasn't just two trees in this garden. You know what horticulturists tell us? They say that there are roughly 2,500 different fruit-bearing trees on the planet. Okay? Now, I have to believe that at least one of each of those fruit trees is gonna be represented in that garden. So we got, let's just just assume this. We got 2,500 trees in the garden, all right? And God looks at Adam and says, you may freely eat of any tree you want. So the emphasis is 2,499, baby, are all yours. But God doesn't want a robot or robots. He wants people that can choose to have a relationship with him, right? So God, because God doesn't want it to be impossible for them not to walk away from him or turn away from him. So God says, except one, this one tree in the center of the garden, of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil, the knowledge of good and evil, don't eat it. Now, the next scene, we don't know if this happens a year later, 10 years later, 20 years later, but we all know what happens. God brings all the animals to Adam. Adam names them all, and there's not a suitable helper, so God puts them in a deep sea, takes out Eve. And we don't know how long this time period is before the next thing happens, but we do know that the serpent targets her, and there's a reason for it. And so he goes after the woman, and look at the first thing he says to the woman. He says to the woman, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? So in other words, you know what he's saying to her? He's saying, get your eyes off of the 2,499 and look at the one tree you can't eat from. Now, how often does he do that with us? I mean, did you wake up this morning? Did you breathe air this morning? Did you drink water that was clean this morning? Did you eat food today? Are you tracking with me? I mean, I could stand here till late tonight 
and talk about all that God has done for us and all that God has given for us and all that we can do and all the blessings and the, the life that he wants us to so richly enjoy. But what the enemy does, he gets her eyes off the 2,499 and says, look at the one you can't eat. That's exactly what he wants to do with you. So she being, you know, phase one of his strategy to get Eve's focus away from God's generous provision. So she being a great woman, walking with God, she loves her husband. She says, hey, we can eat of the trees of the garden, but the, the tree that's in the midst, God says you can't eat it or you can't touch it or you're going to die. Now, God never said anything about not touching that tree. So you know what that does? That gives us a little clue here. She's got communicated knowledge, not revelation knowledge. Now you say, what do you you mean communicated knowledge and revelation knowledge? To explain it, let me go to an incident that occurred with Jesus. Jesus with his disciples and he looks at his disciples and he says this to them. He says, um, he's just got the 12 there. And he says, who do men say that I am? So immediately they start spewing out what everybody else is saying. I mean, what they read on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Oh, I saw on my Instagram account the other day, you're Elijah, but they didn't say that. You're Elijah, because they read it. And somebody said, you're one of the prophets. Somebody said, Jeremiah. Somebody said, you know, this and that and the other. And so Jesus lets them get everything out that has been communicated to them, that they wrote it, read on social media. He completely drains them of all that. And he waits until they're finished, and then he looks at him and says, but who do you say that I am? Now, when he says that to them, all of a sudden, they're speechless. See, if he wouldn't have put the first question to them, you know what they would have done? He said, you're Jeremiah, you're Elisha, come back. But he's just drained all the communicated knowledge out of them. He says, now, who do you say that I am? And they're all just sitting there looking at him like, oh my gosh. And Peter blurts out, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And Jesus looks at Peter and says, Peter, you are so blessed because flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. But my father in heaven has revealed it to you. In other words, this wasn't communicated knowledge to you, Peter. This was revealed to you. And he said, Peter, it's on this knowledge that I'm gonna build my church and hell can't do anything against this knowledge. I mean, if you look how this holds, a few chapters later, Jesus is preaching something pretty strong. He says, unless you eat my flesh, drink my blood, you'd have nothing to do with me. And you know what? That was pretty strong for those Jewish guys. You know what the Bible says? Many of his team members walked away. Walked away, his team members. We're not talking about the multitudes. We're talking about staff members, team members. They left and walked away. And Jesus looked at the 12 and said, you going too? And they're all sitting there just looking at him. And you can tell they're not real happy about what he said either. But Peter, he's got this thing called revelation knowledge. And he goes, where else are we gonna go? You're the Christ. We've come to learn you're the Christ, the son of the living God. You have the words of eternal life. Where else can I go? In other words, I don't like what you're saying either but I know you're the Christ, you're the Messiah. That's revealed knowledge is what God said, I'll build my church on. Now, how do we get revealed knowledge? It can come by reading an anointed book. It can come by listening to your pastor preach. 
It can come when you're in the shower and you've just, you know, you're just, you're just, your heart's turned towards God. It can come in your morning prayer time. It can come at any different time. I mean, you can be driving a car down the street and all of a sudden there's an explosion on the inside of you. God just seals something. Do you know, let, let me say it to you like this. When, I, when I'm preaching in churches, I always tell people, don't write down everything I say. Write down what explodes on the inside of you. That's right. Because that's what God has revealed to you. That's what the enemy can never take away from you. Sometimes it's a still small voice. Sometimes you just know. Sometimes it's a screen that's let down from heaven where Peter sees all the animals. It's a vision. Sometimes it's a dream where God just speaks in your heart and all of a sudden, bam, it's there. You know, I could be preaching right now and all of a sudden you go, man, that's it. You know, I, I'm sure Peter was sitting there watching Jesus and all of a sudden he remembered what a rabbi said that the Messiah, the Christ would take our infirmities. And he went, my gosh, he's, it's him. He's not just a great prophet. He's not a great teacher. He's, he's the Messiah. That is revealed knowledge. See, what's the difference between that and communicated knowledge? Communicated knowledge. Classic example. You ever heard somebody say this? Well, you know money's the root of all evil. Money is not the root of all evil. Now, I'm going to tell you, that guy probably heard his pastor preach out of 1 Timothy chapter 6 one morning where he said the love of money is the root of all evil. And that guy walks out of the building and goes, money's the root of all evil. What happened? He really didn't get the heartbeat of what God was saying. See, here's what happens with Eve. I'm sure Adam and Eve one day were walking through the garden and Ab Adam goes, hey, babe, that's, that's the, because there's 2,500 trees at least. And Adam goes, hey, babe, that's the one. We, we, we don't eat it. We don't touch it. Now, Adam knew what he was saying. We said, we don't eat it. We don't touch it. He was saying, that's the one we don't eat. But you know what I'm, I'm almost certain of? She never went to God because she walked with him in the cool of the garden as well. She never went to God and said, no, God, tell me about this one. Just, just seal it to me. See, this is why the Christians of Berea were so wise because when Paul came and preached, you know what they did? The Bible says they were open-minded and they searched the scriptures daily to see if what Paul was saying was true because they wanted God to speak that on the inside of them because that revealed knowledge is what keeps us from getting lost. Are you with me? And so, and so what happens next here is she looks at him and says, hey, we, we're not supposed to eat or touch it. So now the enemy goes into phase two of his strategy. The serpent says to the woman, you will surely not die. So what's phase two of his strategy? He negates the word of God. How many, how many times do we have this happening today? Hey, I know it's really good. We love each other. We know we're going to get married. But if we move in together, we won't have two different rents, two different utilities. Let's just live together. So what happens? The enemy negates the word of God that says, let not fornication be once named among you. He negates the word of God that says, the marriage bed is undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. He negates that and goes, hey, it's a good thing. We're gonna be married eventually. We'll save money. We'll have more money to be able to give to our church to, you know, do you see what's happening here? He's using a good to negate the word of God. Because look, the enemy comes right in and says, for God knows. Now, when he says, for God knows, what's he implying? God's hiding something from her. Correct? Yeah. For God knows. Now look at this, because this is the most important step of his strategy. For God knows in the day you eat, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So he's implying God's withholding something. Now, you got to remember, she's looking at this tree. 
She sees it's good. She sees it's desirable. And she sees it will make her wise. And the enemy goes, for God knows. So this is the most crucial step of his phase of his plan. He perverts the character of God in her eyes. He makes God look like a taker. God's withholding something. There's something good for you and your husband in that tree. And God's withholding it from you. Now, the moment he twists the character of God in her eyes. Now, come on, I know you can relate to this. Have you ever been frustrated before? You ever felt like heaven was holding back? You were praying about something. You were crying out to God. Hey, look at my daughter. She's been suffering. And all of a sudden now the enemy just comes in and goes, for God knows. For God's holding back. And all of a sudden you're like, you're you're, you're starting to find yourself getting angry. God, like God, you're withholding. You're holding back. The moment he perverts the character of God's in her eyes, she turns on him. See, because the psalmist, David, even knew this. David was a king. He says, righteousness and justice are the foundations of your throne. In other words, David knows a king will never endure. He will never have an enduring reign if he isn't just and honest. And the enemy knows this. For God knows he's holding something back from you. He's lying. There's something good for you in that tree and he's holding it back. You still here? You're really quiet on me tonight. And then the fourth phase is he promises the good that's being withheld. As soon as he does it, she eats. See, this is why James comes along in the New Testament and James says, do not be deceived. Now, do you know, I see that in a very positive light. Do you know what James is saying there? You can live in such a way that you will never be deceived. If God commands us not to be deceived, do you know what that means? It is possible not to be deceived because God never tells us to do anything we can't do. Do not, put, put the scripture back up. Do not be deceived. And he's talking to Christians, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Yeah. From the father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shadow of turning. He never changes. You know what James is saying there? Now, so many people read this from the negative light instead of the positive light. You know what James is saying? There is nothing good for you outside of God. Okay, I don't care how good it looks, how much money you think it's gonna make you. I don't care how happy you think you're gonna be. If it's not from God, if it is contrary to what God says, it is not good for you. The end is the end of death. In other words, the end is detrimental for you, not good for you. It's so simple, but yet so complex for so many. Still with me? So then what is our reference point? What should settle what is good for our life and what appears to be good but is detrimental for our life? Paul tells Timothy, he makes it so clear. He says, all scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true, what is good, and to make us realize what is wrong, bad for our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong, bad, and it teaches us to do what is right that is good. The scripture is what shows us what is so good for our life. Yet, how the enemy is trying to negate the scripture today, and I'm talking about Christians' eyes. It's out of date, 
It's not applicable to our society. We have a different ways nowadays. It's kind of an old-fashioned book. Are you with me? The Encyclopedia of Biblical Words says the word good, the Hebrew word for good is tov, T-O-B, only because God has shared his evaluation of good in his word are we who rely on him able to affirm with confidence that a certain thing, quality, or course of action is beneficial. Let's just talk about the scripture here for a minute, okay? The Bible's written over 1,500 years. Over 1,500 years. Would you please stop and think of how long 1,500 years ago was? It would be 500 AD. No British Empire at all yet. You understand, okay? It was written over 1,500 years, 40 different writers. Most of them live in different generations. They didn't even know each other. And they came from three different continents. They wrote it on three different continents in different languages. Some wrote from the prison, some wrote from the palace. Some were doctors, some were physicians, or some others were uh, shepherds, some were farmers, some were tent makers, some were, you know, doctors. I mean, you could go on and on and on. Very few of them knew each other. And yet you take all their books and put them together and you get a perfectly harmonizing Bible. That's amazing when you think about it. But then let's go one step further. From 400 years before Christ, Till 1,500 years before Christ, the Old Testament was written. And if you look at the Old Testament, now, now think about it. There's 1,100-year time period the Old Testament's written, right? Most of these writers don't even live in the same generation as each other. And they all make predictions about the coming Messiah. Things like that he would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. He would be crucified, pierced. He would come into Jerusalem on a donkey. He would be called out of Egypt, on and on and on. Born in Bethlehem. All these writers wrote these different predictions. Over 300 of them. So there was a scientist back in the 1960s named Dr. Peter Stoner. Dr. Peter Stoner employed 600 science students from 12 different classes. And they studied intensely the probability that any one human being could fulfill just eight of those 300 prophecies from the time of Jesus until present day. Well, present day would be the 60s. The American National Scientific Board did this study on theirs, did evaluation on their findings and said they were very accurate, in fact, conservative. So he and his 600 Bible school, or excuse me, he and his 600 science students, they got together And they studied 12 different classes, one person fulfilling just eight of the prophecies. What are the eight of the prophecies? I'll show them to you real quick. Christ to be born in Bethlehem. He's to be preceded by a messenger, come into Jerusalem on a donkey. He's to be betrayed by a friend. He's to be sold for 30 pieces of silver. Go on and on and on. They determined that the chances of one human being from the time of Jesus until the 1960s to fulfill those eight prophecies was one in 10 to the 17th power. Now, what is 10 to the 17th power? That is a one with 17 zeros behind it. Let me help you understand this, okay? If I had that many silver dollars, there's no place in the, in the world I could store them. There's no place big enough. We would have to spread them out over the entire state of Texas. And if we did, they would be two feet deep over the entire state of Texas. Mark one of those coins. Gather them all together, shuffle the whole thing, redistribute it over the entire state. Blindfold a guy, put him in a helicopter, fly him over the state of Texas. At any point, he can say, let it down. 
He lets it down. He's still blindfolded, picks up one coin. The chances of him picking that one marked coin is one in 10 to the 17th power. Yet Jesus fulfilled all eight prophecies. What about 16 prophecies? Dr. Soner said the chance for all 16 would be one in 10 to the 45th power. That's one with 45 zeros behind it. If I had that many silver dollars, you know what I would have? I wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to store it on the earth. We'd have to make a big ball out of them and that ball would be 60 times the diameter of the distance of the earth to the sun. It would be $5.5 billion million miles in diameter. Blindfold a guy, put him in a plane, fly him around that globe. It would take 400 years to fly around it, by the way. At any point he can let down, he's got to pick out blindfolded one silver coin the chances of picking out that one mark coin is one in 10 to the 45th. That's for one human being to fulfill 16 prophecies. Jesus fulfilled all of them. All 300 prophecies written 400 oh, yes. to 1500 years yes. before he was born. Is this Bible accurate? You better believe it. Is it out of date? No way. This is why the book writer of Hebrews, and I'm closing now, says this says, we must listen very carefully to the truth we've heard or we may drift from it. When I was a boy fishing in Michigan, I'd be so excited about fishing, I wouldn't anchor. And I'd look up 30 minutes later and I couldn't even recognize the shoreline. Why? Because I drifted. Drifting never happens consciously. It happens unconsciously. We're in a day right now, let me tell you something. If you're getting ready to walk across the landmine field, I just want to, this is the last thing I'm going to say to you. And in this landmine field, there's, there's mines, there's quicksand, there's sinkholes, there's poisonous plants. And you've got to walk across this very large field. Somebody gives you a map that shows you where every landmine is, every sinkhole, every poisonous plant. How would you treat the map? Would you just kind of look at it casually and then start off? No, they'd pull you out in a body bag. Would you put it in there and if you had time to read, you'd read it? No, they'd pull you out in a body bag. I tell you, you'd study that map so carefully. You'd put it in a place easier to reach than your water bottle and you'd pull it out constantly and reference it. We are in that landmine field. It's called the world and God's given us his word. I want to say this. I've only opened up this message. I didn't even share with you what are the good things that are deceiving people. I got through the first three chapters basically. This message is so important. Here's the book out there. It's already hit number one on Amazon pre-release for two weeks in a row. This is the way I, I was in prayer and God really put something in my heart. I've never done this in my entire life. If you don't have the money for this book, you say, John, I just can't afford $16 for this book. Then I want you to go out there and I want you to ask them to give you one and they will give it to you. I've instructed them to give it. Because this message is so important, I cannot have anybody leave this building tonight, today without this book and this message in their hand. I am so deeply concerned for the church in America today, all right? And so that's the deal. Here, there's three conditions. If you get this book and, and you say, I just do not have the money, I cannot afford the $16 this month in my budget, then here's the deal. One per family, you have to read it from cover to cover, and when you're done reading it, you have to give it to somebody. That's the condition. The other thing I want to let you know, I went into a 17,000 member church in Atlanta and did the curriculum. There is a six-week curriculum. It's made for individual or for family study. Now, this is on sale. We've discounted significantly to, six, uh, to 59. 
$59, is that right guys? Am I right? Yell it at me. $65, okay? But here's the deal. I'm gonna do something else I've never done before. If you buy five books, okay, I'm gonna give you the curriculum components for free. For $79, you get five books in the curriculum. So why am I doing this? Because I believe the body of Christ right now that we really, really need to get back into finding out what God says is good for us and what is not. So basically, you buy five books for 70. That's 65, just the curriculum. You get the curriculum and four other books for $79. I just want to make it available. It's going to be at all the campuses. And can I just say this right now? What I want to do right now is for campus pastors to come and let's, let's minister to the people. Let's, let's call for those that maybe don't have a relationship with Jesus to come to Jesus. Amen? I want every head bowed and every eye closed. Every head bowed, every eye closed. I know I, I, I probably sounded tonight like I was a fire hose because I was releasing so much, but I think you guys are smart enough to hear what was being said tonight. And I'm, I just feel that there are people sitting in here tonight. Jesus isn't a passion anymore for you. Coming to church is something you're doing because you really do want a good afterlife, but you've lost the relationship aspect, the passion. Now, I know most of you, you in here, you have that relationship with God. You love him deeply. But there's some people in here tonight, you're here just because you just want to get to church on Saturday and let's get it done because I just want to enjoy tomorrow as a day off. And that's fine if you do that. But what I'm saying is, you've just lost that passion for God. We're living in some very, very exciting days, but we're also living in days where people can't be lukewarm in their Christianity. Because of the way things are going right now, we've got to make up our mind we are going to serve God with all of our heart. I remember I went to church every single Sunday of my life. I played varsity tennis at Purdue University. I made my tennis coach bring me to Saturday night mass because I wasn't going to miss one weekend because it was a religious thing for me to do. But then I remember one day, one of my fraternity brothers coming up and sharing with me about Jesus. He said, John, you know about the president of the United States. Tell me about him. I said, sure, it's Jimmy Carter, his wife's Rosalind. He's a peanut farmer from Georgia. He said, do you know about Jesus? I said, yeah, died on a cross. He had 12 apostles. He was born of a virgin. And then my, my fraternity brother looked at me and he said, do you know Jesus? Well, actually, he said this first. He said, do you know the president of the United States like you know your mother? I looked at him and I said, no. He said, what's the difference? I said, well, She's my mom. He said, no, no, tell me the difference. I said, well, I've never met the President of the United States, but I know my mom. He said, so John, what you're saying to me is, is that you know about the President, but you've never met him personally, but you know your mom intimately and personally. I said, yeah, that's it, that's it, that's it. And then he looked at me and he said, do you know Jesus like you know your mother? And all of a sudden I realized, wow, I don't. And he looked at me and he said, John, God didn't create you just so you could be religious and go to church every weekend. He created you because he wants to have a relationship with you. 
So you gotta understand something. Jesus gave his entire life for us. His entire life. He died on that cross because he loved you that, very, that much. He didn't hold anything back. He left absolute perfection and came and suffered and died when he didn't do a thing wrong. He died for one reason, because he cared about you more than he cared about himself. The only way you can have a relationship with God, the only way, is by giving your entire life to Jesus. It's kind of like a marriage. You know, when a woman walks down an aisle of a church, you know what she's saying? She's saying goodbye to every single man on the planet except the one guy that she's waiting for, that she's coming down. Is there anybody in here tonight, you'd say, John, I want to give my life to Jesus. I want to give everything to him. I haven't done that before. I come to church. I love the church. I love the singing. I love the people I meet. But I've never really given my entire life to Jesus. If that's you, I want you to just put up your hands right now. And let me pray for you tonight. Just with every head bowed, every eye closed. I see the hands going up. Just put them up. Don't be ashamed. I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to have you stand up or anything like that. Just put them up high. Just so God can see your hand up. Okay, can we all pray this prayer together with the people that raise their hands tonight? Just say this with me. God in heaven. Let's pray with them. God in heaven. Thank you for sending Jesus. Forgiving me for living life my way. Apart from you, my creator. But this day, I give my spirit, soul, and body. Everything I have. Everything I am. To you, Jesus. Jesus, you are my Lord. I will love you and serve you forever. Thank you for bringing me into your family. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's give him praise.